Hey everybody, this is Marky Ramon, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. They definitely do. Hey, this is Don Felder, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks with John Caddick. Hey everyone, this is Kasim Sultan from Utopia and a ton of other projects, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Episode 506 of the Iron City Rocks Podcast. My name's John from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk here on Iron City Rocks. Episode 506, we're joined by a gentleman who from the years 1977 till about 1980 left a massive crater on the face of rock music and pop music, really, to be quite honest with you. A man who had a string of number one hits four hugely successful albums, a huge hit television series. We're talking about Mr. Sean Cassidy. Sean um, had some hits overseas before coming to the United States, uh, dropping hits like That's Rock and Roll, The Do Run Run, Teen Dream, Hey Deanie, you name it. Uh, everything he did turned to gold or platinum. It was on a successful TV show with Parker Stevenson as the Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mystery. Uh, and then... If that weren't a career enough, he went on to become an a, a extremely successful television producer, uh, most probably notably to many of you, the show New Amsterdam. Uh, he's a producer on that television show, writer. Um, so it is a great pleasure. Uh, we have Sean Gassi on the show. He'll be coming into Pittsburgh on June 17th to do a show at the Carnegie Music Hall of Homestead here in Munhall. It's going to be a music slash spoken word kind of thing, some storytelling uh to me, it sounds very much akin to what you used to see on VH1 Storytellers uh, with him kind of talking about the songs and doing some different arrangements and things like that. So it should be a fantastic night. Amazing musician. Also, some great Pittsburgh ties. Sean's mother, uh, as some of you may know, is Shirley Jones. Shirley Jones from the Mon Valley. Uh, born in Charleroi. Family raised her in Smithton, Pennsylvania, down on... Uh, Route 70, off Route 70. Uh, her father founded Stoney's Beer. So if you're from Western Pennsylvania and you're not drinking Icy Light, you're probably drinking Stoney's Beer uh, from Smithton. Uh, she went on to become Miss Pittsburgh uh, before uh, moving on and starring in shows like The Partridge Family, etc. Uh, so Sean sort of had acting in the blood, but also has Pittsburgh in the blood. So it was great to catch up with him and talk about his family's roots in Pennsylvania music, acting, the show, you name it. So, without further ado, we're going to play you a little Sean Cassidy to get into that interview. Well, I was 16 at secret school I didn't know what I wanted to do I bought a guitar I got the fever That's rock and roll I played at parties Played in bars I spent my money buying new guitars I screamed my heart 
right, ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Sean Cassidy. How are you doing, Sean? I'm great, John. Uh, I appreciate your time. You're going to be coming into our fine city here in Pittsburgh on the 17th of June, uh, obviously. With your family history, no stranger to Pittsburgh, your mom, a native of uh, Western Pennsylvania. Uh, I know you've been here many times. It's going to be great to have you coming back um, for a night of music. Um, I have to say you might want to talk to your booking agent. They booked you the same night as Taylor Swift, so that's going to knock out I, your 13-year-olds. Uh, all, all the Swift, Swifties that were planning on coming to my show, I guess, won't be there. Yeah, and, uh, uh, I, I uh, think we'll be fine. I think we might be in a different demo. Yeah, you'd, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Yeah. I think I own albums from both, but I, you know, I oh. might be, I might be in the minority on that one. Well, I'm a big fan of hers too. Honestly, if I weren't doing a show, I'd go see her too. If you could get tickets, that's the. If key. I could get tickets, you yeah. might have some some pull. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know some of these songs that you know you started making albums, if if not. If my timeline is correct, you actually put out your first album before the Hardy Boys show debuted. Um, so I put these out are... records. That's true. I didn't have an album yet, but I had okay. been signed. My first record uh, deal was through Holland. Weirdly, okay. the the Dutch signed me, and then uh, the Australians and the Germans—they sort of all fell in in the UK. And I think the idea was, if you can get a hit record in another country in a different market. Mm-hmm. It might pop on the pile of, you know, weekly singles that were sent to DJs in America, you know, and I did. I had my first number one song in the world in Australia, but I hadn't put out an album yet. The first album came out in the States, kind of uh, concurrent with the Hardy Boys. Were you prepared for that tidal wave or, or is anybody really prepared for that tidal wave? And I was pretty young at the time, but I just remember seeing your Me face. Too, John. Yeah, I mean, you were what 19 if not even no um, i started recording when i was 17 and i was just 18 when i got the job on the hardy boys uh and was i prepared i don't i don't think anybody can be prepared but i think um based on what i witnessed in my own family yeah uh, i i had at least an idea of what that ride was like and i think ultimately that probably got me through it did it help? I mean, as from a business standpoint, because you know, musically, I think people, you know, can do okay. It's it's always the business it seems to chew people up. Was that something that you had the right people on your team to kind of help you navigate that when it came no. to you know, what to <laughs> know? Not necessarily. Uh, no, I, I I think it's a combination of you know the the people surrounding young people in show business don't really want that person to get all that educated about business mm-hmm. because sure. they're going to cause trouble if mm-hmm. they do and sure. they're going to ask questions and tend to second guess and i started doing that fairly early because i was interested in the business and i was interested in ultimately moving behind the scenes which i did yeah. fortunately um i don't think that people had malicious intent that were working with me but i don't think anyone was thinking beyond you know the year we were in right nobody was going how will this step affect what happens to you in five or ten or twenty years i don't think anybody was doing that and the best careers actually think from that perspective right were you able to have any say in you know when you signed your deal as far as songwriters i know you you would been you know writing songs you had holiday on your first album for example but you know you guys use some eric carmen stuff you know which turned out to be a great move 
uh, obviously the huge hit with the Phil Spector song. I mean, did you get much say in that? I got a little bit. Um, those songs in particular you're talking about were my choices to record. Okay. I had heard Do Run Run as a little boy, little, little preschool kid on a school bus in L.A. and loved the song. And when I found out that the producers wanted to record um, cover songs primarily, and I think that their feeling was if a song was a hit 10 or 15 years ago, it's brand new to a 15-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. uh you know so and and if it had hit dna in it then perhaps it still has hit dna in it and they may have been right i was interested in writing my own stuff and i got to write more as the records uh, unfolded but sure um i did have a say in it um and and i i chose that's rock and roll uh i chose to do run run i ultimately chose hey Dini because eric carmen called me after that's rock and roll was a hit which he had written he had recorded on his first solo album. Um, and he said, if you like that song, I got another you might enjoy. And uh, he played me the demo for Hey Dini, and I loved it. And it remains my favorite of the hits uh, now. Did, did he call you when he wrote um, Hungry Eyes or Make Me Lose Control? Or did he lose your number? No, he kept time? those for himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, if you say he went on to to really make a, a name for himself yeah. as, as the face of but the I've song. I've been a fan of his when he led the Raspberries, which were, yeah. you know, Sort of the early power pop band and sure. uh, i loved those records did do you get much choice when it came to even like the the image well, i don't want to say maybe the visual image but but the edge of the songs and some of that stuff like were you was it your decision to go full-on pop or you know no. okay or did no, you go and i want to be the next robert plant and this is what they let you make yeah, but I think they looked at me and they said, kid, you're not going to be the next Robert Plant. Sure. And, I, you know, the, the irony is I had been in a lot of sort of proto-punk bands mm-hmm. in high school. And my favorite artists were early, early David Bowie and T-Rex and Iggy Pop and, and you know, sort of glam rock meets early punk rock. And I kind of looked the part, even though I was very, very young. And... They saw me. It was a combination. I ended up getting this television show called The Hardy Boys, and I couldn't look like Iggy Pop playing Joe Hardy. Um, In that sense, they cleaned me up. And then I think that the producers, you know, they're businessmen, and they were sort of taking the path of least resistance. And if Mm -hmm. you've got a cute kid who can carry a tune, you probably don't want him pretending to be Sid Vicious. Yeah, I certainly Um, so, so, and I, you know, my, they told me my first album was the biggest selling solo debut in history until Whitney Houston came along. So maybe they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Nice. Um, but if you have any artistic ambition, uh, long-term artistic ambition, you want to grow from that. And I grew in a different direction. I didn't take the Justin Timberlake road. I went into writing television shows, uh, which has been my creative outlet for 30 years. Um, yeah. That, I think that's the, I, re- I recall I don't even remember what season it was, but we were watching New Amsterdam and seeing your name come up on the screen during the opening scenes. And always remember the spelling of your first name being a little bit less than normal. And I'm like, wonder if that's who I think it is. And then I looked that <laughs> up and I'm like, holy crap, that's who I think it is. And yeah. and and that's, you know, I was kind of late to realize what you were up to, but what at what point did you kind of say, I want to go behind the scenes of entertainment as opposed to being the face? I mean, because that's 
probably a, you know in the long run a brilliant move you know I, I don't think it was that calculated I, I I just think I innately felt that I was more suited to mm -hmm. producing and writing than I was to performing I I am not my sensibility isn't that really of a performer I, I mean I enjoy doing it and I'm loving doing the show I'm doing now but I took 40 years off I mean mm -hmm. I stayed home writing scripts and producing shows for a long 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 time and I really didn't think I'd get back to it and how I got back to it. I'll tell you in a second, but uh, to your question, I really like the process of creating worlds, you know, mm -hmm. and I like television shows that feel like novels. And when I started, my first show was a show called American Gothic in 1995. And it was very serialized and it had a very dark anti-hero in the lead. And it was very different than what was going on on network TV but it became kind of a model for subsequent shows like Sopranos and The Shield and mm -hmm. every dark anti-hero show you've seen on cable and, and streaming since. So um, I'm grateful that that's how television moved because it, it became way more serialized and more like novels yeah. as opposed to a you know, closed-ended story of the week. Yeah. Um, and and to your earlier question, I was rewriting my dialogue on The Hardy Boys. I mean, I was like interested in... The writer's room more than i was in the acting and and i, I think it reflects in my acting by the way um but whatever i'm grateful yeah i mean it's certainly you know a great outlet for creativity i always enjoy you know being musicians that end up in different aspects of entertainment because i think sometimes that speaks to that side of your brain that you work with you know you see a lot of great musicians who are great painters or you know have a that sort of creativity. Um, I think, yeah. but I think that's true of all creative people. I think if you're creative, you're creative in a lot of different ways. Right. Business tends to want to put you in one lane. Yeah. Uh, because it's just, you know, agents are selling something and they want to say, you're this kind of soap, not that kind of soap. Mm -hmm. And if you become two kinds of soap, it gets blurry and it actually is harder for them uh, to try and sell you. But I wasn't thinking about that, but you also have to be willing to let go of whatever your early success is. If you want to transition again, cause I, you know, I really felt like over the years I've had offers to continue singing and play Vegas or whatever. And right. I just, I can't do that. If I do that, they're not going to think I'm really taking this writing thing seriously. Right. You know, only until 2019, which is the first time in almost 40 years, I decided I'm going to go out on the road uh, did I start performing again? And the show that I'm bringing uh, to, to the Munn Hall to uh, Carnegie Homestead um, mm -hmm. is kind of a, a celebration of the early part of my life and a, an explanation, I think, of the rest of my life. It's a hybrid of storytelling and and music, and and it feels like the culmination of both these lives I've, I've led. Do you miss? you know once you got a chance to go back on stage and do that did you you know with I imagine with television film you, there's an air of you produce it but you don't get immediate feedback the way you do in front of a live audience did you kind of miss that i mean back in the yeah. 70s it was pandemonium so you could have gone out there and just read the phone book and girls would have went nuts but you know at 2019 sean cassidy was that gratifying to get that kind of response that quick the immediacy it, of it, it? It is really why I decided to do it, John. I not because I was in any way, shape, or form thinking I could replicate playing yeah. Madison Square Garden, but 
I, you know, I, I continued working in the theater even after I stopped doing concerts. I, my last work as an actor was a Broadway show called Blood Brothers mm-hmm. with my brother David that we did for over a year on Broadway. And I was in my mid-30s then, and I loved that experience. And I loved acting in the theater, and I loved working with playwrights where I learned a lot about writing myself. So this show is really more of a, sort of a hybrid of the theater and pop music and storytelling with the specific goal of connecting with the audience in a way you could only do in the theater. And I could never do with a television show. I mean, New Amsterdam is probably the biggest hit show I've been involved with. And I've, I've had a lot of shows on the air, but I have a lot of cult hits, which is code sure. for canceled quickly. You know? <laughs> uh, but New Amsterdam was a bonafide big yeah. hit on network and then sold to Netflix and it became the number one show in the world. So a lot of people saw that and, and, like you were like, oh, Sean Cassidy's on that show or writing that show. Yeah. And that was gratifying. And it is gratifying, but you don't actually have the same feeling you do when you tell a story to an audience or sing a song to an audience in a room and you get that immediate response. Yeah. It's, it's like nothing else. Yeah. I, re- I remember having a conversation with Kiefer Sutherland when he did his first tour. Um, and that was one of the things he remarked on was just that, you know, you do something for a camera you know, it's great to see it blow up, but you do it for 1,200 people in a room. And it's it's a very different experience. Um, looking back at your catalog, are there some songs that, that you find more enjoyable to play? I, I listened, you know, to your, your some of your hits this morning. I was listening to Teen Dream and thinking, boy, that one has to be hard to sing at this point. Are there songs that you find more enjoyable to play at this point? You know, it's so great about that particular song i'm so glad you mentioned it i do sing teen dream i don't sing it the same way and Uh, more to the point i explain what the song's about and people always assume that song was about me or about my experience i wrote the song by the way but i wrote it when i was 16 i wrote it before i was recording and a couple years later when i'm making an album they said you know you got anything and i said yeah listen to this song i've always really liked the song but the song is about the audience. It's about their shared experience of having this teen idol or the passion for a boy band or whatever it is. And I really come to believe that the whole uh, teen idol thing is not about the performer. It's about the audience. It's it's sharing that experience. It's a it's a hormonal hurricane, and yeah, and you just happen to be in the middle of it. You're the eye of the hurricane. Um, but when, when I talk about the song, I talk about writing it when I did, and then I play it, and I play it differently than the record, it has a very different context, and it lands differently, and it doesn't feel like, what is this weird 60-year-old guy <laughs> singing? Yeah. Uh, Teen Dream, you know, which is the show I did not want to do, because that, sure. I think, I never wanted to go out and do a pure nostalgia show or try to pretend I was 20 or, you know, put on satin pants. I, that was not yeah. my idea of... Uh, something that would have been gratifying. And I'm grateful I never had to do that because a lot of people yeah. do it. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, you, you see it constantly, you yeah. know, where people are like, Oh, this has got to be a bit humbling to do this. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to be able to go out and do this on your own terms. Exactly. When, growing up with, with parents, uh, your, your half brother in show business, were you, 
more focused, you know, like let's say a 15, 16 year old Sean Cassidy, were you more interested in becoming a musician? Was acting even something you, you thought about at that age? Not, not particularly. No. I, um, I had bands. I, I never did a high school play or anything like that. Um, but what happened was I had signed this record deal and I was making these singles mm-hmm. uh, that were coming out in different markets overseas, nothing in America. And I graduated from high school and was like uh, not making any money and like, mm-hmm. okay, do I go to college? Do I really sort of focus on this music thing, but I have to make a living. And I, I went to my manager who was basically my, our family's manager. She was like my aunt. And I said, what do I do? She said, why don't you go on some acting audition to see if you can walk and talk at the same time? And, because you might have to walk and talk at the same time. If you ever, ever have a hit record. Hmm. Okay. So I went on two auditions and the first audition was for a film, John Wayne film called The Shootist and Ronnie Howard got the part. And the second audition I went on was The Hardy Boys. And I seriously considered not doing it uh, because I was afraid it might jeopardize whatever record career I might have. Uh, And I honestly didn't think, you know, I hadn't really acted. And again, it really shows in the early episodes. I'm I'm just standing around just sort of watching (laughs) stuff happen and uh, you know, I, I don't know, but um, that is sort of what made it happen. And then I found out that there were parts of acting I really did like and right. kind of fell in love again, acting in the theater. And I did that for about 10 years. I worked mm-hmm. in the West End of London. I worked the Mark Taper Forum in L.A. and on Broadway and learned a lot. And I became probably a much better actor. But ultimately, I didn't want to be an actor. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was it's... Me when I talk to actors now. On my yeah. Show. Yeah, it's good you can speak the language, you know, more or less. When when I always think back to those Hardy Boys episodes, um, and you know, obviously as, as a fan of the music, we always loved it when you know, whatever the plot was going on, you would stop and sing a song. Was that something you had a say in, or was that just you know, no, whoever I was producing? I didn't thing? always love that. What happened was. Uh, you know, I had a, a record coming out. I mean, Warner Brothers, who I was signed with for mm-hmm. records, and Universal Television, ABC, was where I was doing the Hardy Boys. Both wanted to kind of own the other, and they couldn't. And I guess that was probably good. Um, but Warner Brothers heard, oh, kid's got a TV show coming on. We better rush this album out. So they kind of slapped together a bunch of singles, and then I, I recorded two or three other songs. And that album came out. I hadn't even seen the cover picture. I mean, it was that mm-hmm. fast. Um, because they wanted to take advantage of the show. And then the show heard I have an album coming out. So the producer's like, we should have him sing. And I'm like, but there's nothing ever established about this character <laughs> singing. I mean, he's a guy who walks around with a flashlight with his brother, you know, solving mysteries yeah. and he sings. Well, okay, I'll try it once. And we did it once. And I probably sang that's rock and roller to do run around or something. And the show, like the ratings went up, exploded. Yeah. And the record exploded. So suddenly everybody's going, well, this is the secret formula to success. No matter what's going on with the story, let's have him break into song every week. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. We're in a castle. We're dressed dressed as Frankenstein. Stop singing a song. I did it a few times. And ultimately, I would do it if I had a new record coming out, which they I had a lot of them come out very quickly. Because, again, I think they were like, this teen idol thing doesn't last long. We better make money while we can yeah uh, but look i'm I'm grateful for that ride and more to the point i'm grateful that i survived it yeah and you think i mean that was in an era 
just prior to, well, relatively soon before MTV took off. Immediately you know, so, before. Yeah. So, you know, you were in a situation where that was, in some respects, really brilliant and somewhat a forerunner to what, you know, made MTV explode. Had you done the same thing four years later and, and you know, made a clip and sent it to them, you would have been an 80s star. Well, you know, it's funny that I, I've talked to people at the record company about that because when, when the records ultimately stopped selling, which uh, was like five albums in, mm -hmm. uh, combination of, you know, teen idols have a short shelf life and uh, AM radio just died. I mean, for yeah. pop music, it became music. news, weather, and sports. And yeah. FM radio, which was primarily album-driven, was not picking up the Duron run. So sure. I was sort of at sea in terms of where do we go? And I remember going to the uh, the head of marketing at Warner Brothers and said, what do I do? And he said, just go away for a while. Just go away. Let them forget about you. And then you can come back in a few years mm -hmm. uh, and you could be bigger than ever. And maybe who knows possible and yeah with mtv it, it might have been great for me but i never wanted to by the time i'd gone away for a couple of years i didn't want to come back i wanted to keep on this path i was on uh so it all worked out but uh ironically the the you know making a record and you sing on a weekly tv show that model had been been created 20 years earlier with ricky nelson on yeah. Ozzy and Harriet, and he came on the Hardy Boys, and I remember he was a guest on the show. Yeah, I remember that episode. It was in a weird, like transition, like you know, I went to the garden party and trying to be a a, a a serious musician, and wasn't quite there yet. He got there, I think. Um, but he talked to me about that. He said, "What are you going to do? Because this is this is a blessing and a curse." Mm -hmm. I said, "I know, I know." Uh, so. Was the the partnership with Todd Rundgren yep. in hindsight, was that something that you had wanted to do or how did that kind of yes. pairing come about? Uh, all me. I, I, uh, the, my fourth album, which was called room service, which is my least favorite album. Not that I don't think there's good songs on there. I do. And I wrote a bunch of them, but uh, it, there was just a huge push at that time to, infuse everything with disco music disco was just eating everything alive and right. it just wasn't who i was or anything like what i'd been doing and it just felt weird and it didn't feel authentic to me and and i was ready to to do something very different but not make a disco record so when it came time to make the next record i said let's you know start from scratch totally different producer different thing and I've been a huge fan of Todd's forever. I mean, since I was, since I bought something, anything when I was 14. Um, and I I knew his work as a producer. I'd seen that he'd worked with a lot of eclectic acts, very different kinds yeah. of acts. I thought maybe he'll work with me. So we contacted his management and I had a dinner with him. I liked him a lot. We talked a lot. And he said, look, instead of like trying to change your image, don't do that. He said, you're an actor. He said, what you should try and do is create characters from song to song, lean into the acting, you know, let's yeah. make some covers. You don't need to write everything. It's not like you have this great, you know, uh, credibility as a songwriter that you have to uphold. It's still mm -hmm. new for you, but I can give you, some, I can produce some records that sound different than your old records in a good way, hopefully. And um, open the door to some covers that will be perhaps unexpected and give you a chance to really sing in different ways. 
And that's what the record did. And I don't think that record is a complete success. I think it's very much a hit and miss, in fact. But there's stuff on there that I think is as good as anything I did. Yeah, I I actually kind of like, you know, because it is so unexpected. You know, when you listen to the catalog kind of front to back, you get into that album, you're like, this is, you really extended yourself as a musician. You know, there was no safe road on that. Even, you know, you think of a song like Rebel Rebel, you know, I think, okay, there's a song that, you know, a we lot of love people that, do. and a lot of people hate it. We actually really liked it. In fact, I wanted it to be the single, but the record company was like, no, nah, let's put out So Sad About Us, which, you know, of all the songs on that album yeah. is the closest to my earlier yeah. records. But I, uh, I like that you took a, you, you took a chance. And you, when you listen to it, I think, you know, there's parts of that album where I think this um, it almost sounds like Sid Vicious. In this song, you know, and I, I really enjoy that, you know. And I, I enjoy it too. And there's some good, Todd wrote some really good songs on it. Um, yeah. There's a song called Pretending. That's one of my favorite songs he's ever written that's on that record. Yeah. And it's My Life is like a, you know, a gothic opera. Uh, fun, fun stuff. The book I read, the Talking Head song is a cool song. Yeah. It really, I rem- The first time I heard Once Bitten, Twice Shy was what I was like, oh. whoa, is that what I think it is? Because... That was one I, I hadn't heard in a long time. You know, in, ironically, as a kid of the '80s, was so used to the Great White version of that song that yours was so much different. I was like, "This is well, ours." Was recorded before I think the Great White. Yeah, version. absolutely. Yeah, and, you would have and, been. Uh, I'd I, heard it because I was a fan of Ian Hunter. Yeah, um, I loved Mott the Hoople, and and uh, I, I I think I suggested we do it. But yeah, it's it's a, a great great album you know for those who you know maybe want something different than you know the hits or the poppy side of your catalog wasp is, is a is a great great listen and worth the time thanks john i'll, I'll tell uh, todd you said so uh, that's awesome yeah I, I saw chasm played on that album as well chasm, oh, yeah all of utopia played on that album yeah chasm's yeah. one of those names where he shows up on you know in what i do you know you do a lot of research and his name shows up everywhere He's yeah. the busiest man on the base for probably 15 years, you know, between you and Meatloaf and Joan Jett and just an amazing career. Well, one, one last thing I wanted to discuss with you. Um, your mom obviously yeah. was Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh, huge, Pittsburgh. huge part of the fabric of, of this town. I, I live very close to Smithton, um, Charleroi, where she was born. Yeah. Um, do you, have you had a chance, you know, you, obviously your career was pretty whirlwind there for a while and, and you know with tv shows and such do you get a chance to get back this way have family in the area i do and my mother-in-law is also from pittsburgh she grew okay. up in the bottoms okay uh, and and uh i have been back to smithton sort of once every 10 years probably okay uh, the first time i was there i was i don't know 10 and my mom took me to a pirates game and we actually got to watch the game. I think my mother had sang the national anthem, and we got to watch the game from the dugout, which I've never heard of happening before or since. And Roberto Clemente hit a home run, and he gave me the bat, and he signed it. Oh. Right? And I've told this story to a few people over the years, and they all say, well, where's the bat? Where's the bat? And I say, telling you what an idiot I am, I went home and played like little league baseball with oh. that beat it up and who knows where it is. You traded it for a couple uh, but of, I of tops. Never forgot, never forgot that experience. I love Pittsburgh. 
Um, I have I've been back many times uh, because, as I said, my my wife's family is from the area as well. And um, Stoney's Beer, that's the Jones Brewing Company, uh, started by my great-grandfather. Smithton through and through there. You can't go anywhere yeah. without seeing Stoney's down in this area. Uh, we were talking before off-air about the Twin Coaches, which is is yeah. actually technically, I guess, in Ross Raver Township, but a stone's throw from Smith and just up the, the road out of the river. Um, what an amazing venue. Had you had a chance to see that before? I know it had a fire and was destroyed. I think it's, and... I think it's before my time. Okay. Uh, maybe not. Maybe, I don't know when it, it burned down. I do know that, but I don't know if that was in the 70s or the 80s or when. But I have many pictures because my, my father, my father, my grandfather uh, and grandmother used to take my mother there a lot when she was like, you know, probably a teenager herself sure. and an aspiring singer mm -hmm. the, the acts that would come through town and i have pictures of my mother watching may west at the twin coaches in the 50s yeah amazing as as i started to realize what the venue was and i've driven by there thousands and thousands of times and had no idea until um a local musical historical society put the, some pictures up there to like wayne newton sammy davis jr um a venerable who's who of music and they had some pictures of your mom there um actually I don't know if my mom ever performed there she might have uh, she was uh, trying to the picture i had it looked like she was at a dinner if, if you i can send that yeah. to you if you want to take a look at that yeah. um but it, amazing to see the lineage of the place so it, it was nice to have that um so you're going to be coming in um what can i mean as far as the set i mean i'm assuming you're doing 99 percent of the hits that night I do, all, I do all the hits i do um a bit of the music from my family i sing a song of my mom's from one of her movie musicals and song of my father's a, so a song of my brother david's mm -hmm. and all of the songs are kind of connected by a narrative um that puts the songs maybe in a different context than people might expect okay. um there is, I originally wrote the show as a storytelling evening without any music at all. And people were like, no, 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 you can't. You got to sing something. Yeah, you have to sing so they're going to yell at you. Said, if you okay. can't solve a crime without singing a song, you can't tell all these stories without. <laughs> Good anymore. point, John. Good point. Um, so I, I guess uh, wiser heads prevailed and I ended up adding music and I at first went out with a full band. And I, I've done this show not a lot because I started in 2019. I had impeccable yeah. timing, pandemic, yeah. and like suddenly there was no place to go and no place to do it. But I've done it in tiny little places. I started doing it in a little winery near where I live in uh, on the central coast of California. I ended up playing Vegas right before the whole world shut down, like 2,500 people. And then I uh, went out with uh, completely alone, just me without a band and, and did that at some smaller places. And I did bigger places with a trio, which is what I'm doing now. My nephew, Cole Cassidy, is an excellent guitar player and he's in it. And young woman, uh, Kathleen Seek, is a beautiful singer and keyboardist. And we're doing it. Um, that's the show we're doing now. And it's probably my favorite version of the show. Should be a fantastic evening. Well, if, you, if you're not a Swifty, tickets, there's some limited tickets still available. Um, and do you see yourself doing this kind of, is this kind of a one-off tour or is it, we'll see how it goes. Keep the train uh, well, running. Honestly, uh, my, 
there are people that are interested in taking the show to Broadway. And I'm doing, I have five sold out nights at 54 below in New York City, uh, right after Pittsburgh, actually. We yeah, go right I to noticed New- that. Um, and 54 below is the old Studio 54, where I have not been since 1979 when I was in there with Andy Warhol, of all people. Um, but that's kind of right in the middle of the theater district. And the idea and the hope is that uh, it might generate a, a limited Broadway run. That would be fantastic. Uh, because that is kind of what the show feels like. I mean, everybody that wants to hear pop songs will get all the pop songs they want, but they'll also have a story. And it's funny. It's quite funny, I think, he said. <laughs> uh, and it's also kind of emotional. People have a, a real emotional experience, too. That sounds fantastic. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much again, June 17th, Carnegie Music Hall of Homestead. Tickets available now. We'll have links on our site. And I want to thank you so much for this this chance to talk, man. It's my pleasure, John. Go Stonies. (laughs) All right. That about wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. A huge thank you to Sean Cassidy. Appreciate him coming on and spending so much time with us. Again, he will be here June 17th, Carnegie Music Hall of Homestead. Tickets are still available. We'll have a link on our site. You can go to druskyentertainment.com or Sean's website. Uh, we'll link you there as well. It'll be a great night. So if you're not at the Taylor Swift show on June 17th or you were lucky enough to get tickets on the 16th, you can come see Sean Cassidy on the 17th. Um, you know, a star 40 years ago of almost equal magnitude, I mean, he was everywhere. Go to the grocery store and then just walk by the magazine rack. And if you're old enough to remember when grocery stores had magazine racks, it was either Sean or Scott Bayo were staring at you. You walk by the magazine rack, or maybe his brother David. Uh, so the the man was a phenom at that period of time, and some great rock and roll songs. I really enjoyed um, hearing Billy Joe Armstrong cover. That's Rock and Roll, a song I always love from the moment I think I saw Sean do that in the castle in, I think it was season two, episode one of the Hardy Boys. Um, really enjoyed that song. It was written by Eric Carmen. Um, became Sean's first number one song, and it was really cool to hear Billy Joe Armstrong do a maybe a slightly more modern take on it, but still true to the uh, original song. If you have a chance and want to check that out, the album's called No Fun Monday. It's from Billy Joe Armstrong. Uh, I want to thank Sean so much for his time and want to thank you all for listening. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com. All the social medias are Iron City Rocks. No periods, no dashes, no slashes. Email ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show. Do you like the diversity in guests? Do you want more metal, more blues, more pop rock? What do you want? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thank you for listening.